at the point at which you're looking in the future, everybody is telling a story. It's fiction. But it's very informed fiction. It is that we are in a state of crisis. What level, what nature, how it will play out, we don't know. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, I speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I spoke with Anab Jain, who is a designer, futurist, filmmaker, and educator. She co-founded Superflux, a multi-award-winning design agency who translate future uncertainty into present-day choices. Over the last 15 years, she's gained international recognition for her work and commentary on design, innovation, emerging technologies, and complex futures. She is the recipient of many, many awards and has delivered many talks and keynotes, including at TED, MIT Media Lab, and MoMA. Anab was recently appointed to be Professor of the University of Applied Arts in Vienna, where she leads the Design Investigations Program. In this conversation, we talked about how we think about the future is all wrong. In particular, we talked about who and what gives us hope for the future. How do you translate uncertainty into present-day choices? And what is human exceptionalism and why is she calling time on it? So I started out by asking her, why do you not like to make predictions about the future? Enjoy! I suppose we, in our practice, think of the future as being old, that the future is is built on the bones of the actions we take today on all our multiple histories. And so in a way, what will be, will be a combination of these ongoing ideas as well as so many unknown unknowns. So you can predict some things at a, at a certain scale that you know, you know that X number of children are born in this borough. So we can predict that by 2027, there'll be X number of children going to primary schools and the borough doesn't have enough schools. And we need to make a, a arrangement for schools to be there for that to happen. So that sort of prediction I can understand. But the broad sweeping predictions that, you know, we can predict that there'll be X kind of technologies doing X kind of things. That level of the future will be this, the future this will be that is a is a very naive idea because the level of uncertainty that we are currently living under and the level of kind of unpredictability that drives our current worlds, it's a futile exercise and to it's hubristic almost to predict. And I would say thinking creatively about the future is perhaps the only way out because the future does not beam any data back at us. You said the level of uncertainty is so high. Do you think there's something uniquely uncertain about the times we're living in now compared with, I guess, maybe our parents' generation or, you know, 100 years ago? Um, Is there something uniquely uncertain about today? I'm not sure necessarily uniquely uncertain, although this moment of we're all so, in a way, 
a part yet connected to technology. And, you know, you have this kind of 24-hour news cycle. These kind of the impact of the internet has meant that the, the kind of the way information is shared is is very different than it was in our parents' time, and so just because not everyone had access to all that information, you kind of believe that you continue to live life in this way. Also, at that point, some very key climate-related information was kept hidden from the public eye, you know, by companies like Shell who knew about climate change all along but decided not to make it public. There was a period of you know what they call a baby boomers where there was a lot more post-war, a a period of steady, quote-unquote, growth. I feel that right now, uh, this kind of level of information creates a lot of fractured realities. There is a there is a lot of fragmentation, this this idea of opposing camps with opposing ideas. You know, the people who have the loudest voices think they are always right. This creates yet another layer of kind of confusion on top of the kind of crises around pandemics and climate and economic uncertainty that we face. So I think that it is a bit of a hot period, if you like. You said earlier something along the lines of that, you know, the future is not fixed, but, you know, it's it's in our hands to create and build and, and craft it. Is there something about the digital world that we've now grown up in the last couple of decades where uh, we've all become very reactive rather than proactive. So we've lost that agency to to create and to, to shape and to mold our present and the future. That, to me, would seem like one of the uh, consequences of this attention economy, which just has us locked in, you know, constant stream of data and social media and news cycles and what have you. What are your thoughts on that proactive versus reactive kind of shift? I think just at fundamental level, there's just no nuance in our current kind of social media-led communication. There, There is a lot of emphasis on hot takes. There is, you know, if you said something, you're either in that camp or you're in this camp. There is no like middle ground. There is no questioning some aspects of each camp business. And you're clearly seeing this play out in the way the vaccination is being taken or not taken, right? Uh, there are two very clear camps. There's either the vaccination camps or the anti-vaxxers. And I just find that whole, this level of kind of mob mentality, if you like, really troubling because we are going to be faced with such complex le- levels of crises in the future. And if we are going to fight about the side you take for a certain crisis, I think we're going. We're not going to be able to actually find real kind of solutions and real kind of pathways forward because there's always going to be this kind of ready to attack attitude. the The flip side of knowing everything means that, or being on this kind of this attention economy, and the kind of forceful um, nature of it, the addictive nature means you feel you constantly need to have to say something and you need to be able to uh, be on, belong to a certain tribe. It's like, you know, my partner John would say, it's a bit like a 24-7 DDoS attack uh, on your will or on your agency. But do you think we can learn and adapt fast enough? And what sits behind that question is, I was listening to a podcast recently about sort of recent history of reality TV which I'm not particularly a fan of, but they were talking about Big Brother and things like X Factor. And, you know, 20 years ago or so when those shows first came out, that people were totally 
you know, hooked on them. But we've just become a lot savvier at sort of understanding when we're being manipulated or when the contestants are being manipulated and what have you for entertainment purposes. So do you think this hold uh, that digital technologies and in the future, the meta, or well, in the present as well, the metaphors may have on our attention, we can somehow grow to be aware of the effect it's having on us? Or it's just so addictive, isn't it? It's very, very hard to develop that perspective but yeah do you, do you see hope or possibility that we can transcend that uh, rather primal response that, that that we all have to some extent to digital technologies i am a bit hopeful i have a feeling that they have an end date to them these some of these technologies not so much as some of these companies who are solely responsible for a certain type of these technologies. You know, I'm truly interested in the potential of technologies. And so I just, I don't think the technologies that connect us and then keep us in touch with each other and our families and our friends per se are problematic, but uh, their very sort of conceptual framing is exploitative in nature, is extractive, is built on capitalism, which in turn is built on colonialism. And and so we need to really look back at our histories and, and rethink our relationships with technologies and what we and how they serve us or you know what are our relationships with them in a way that are not generally benefiting a select number of shareholders. So how do we do that? I think one of the things that you describe what Superflux does is that you translate future uncertainty into present day choices, which I think is a wonderful uh, sentence, (laughs) a wonderful idea. Could you tell us a bit about how you do that and maybe an example or two to bring that to life? Sure. I suppose, like I said, this you know, like these are big questions. I don't think we necessarily have solutions or answers. But what we, what we think we do really well is we design questions. So um, we explore or question alternative world views or possibilities, and then uh, these alternative uh, to status quo ideas or possibilities. We try and bring them to life in a way that can be emotionally engaging and experiential in nature. So uh, if you imagine you are standing and uh, around you are like kind of six bubbles, and if you're able to step into each of these bubbles physically and be, be enveloped by what you see, then we think of these six bubbles as choices that these six worlds, that these six possibilities about how, for instance, a technology could be used, uh, could be expressed in not just that one idea that you have for your product, but could be these other options. And what that does is it, by emotionally engaging people in these possibilities, we think that um, people return to the present, so to speak, in a, in a more kind of, uh, with, with, with a broader idea of this possibility space and and therefore hopefully make better decisions or remain more agile or anticipatory in nature. So really what we do is we are taking people into journeys, into alternate worlds and possible futures, giving them a feel for what could be, bringing them back and enabling them to make better decisions. That sounds amazing. I wonder whether you can tell the story of a tube of polluted air 
uh, and just in a nutshell, just to bring, I think what you've just described, sort of conceptually into life with a with a with a tangible example, which I thought was very powerful. So the project that you mentioned is is something we did for the Ministry of Energy in the Prime Minister's office in the UAE, and you know they were really interested in um, the policymakers had a lot of data that showed that a high investment in renewable energy was necessary for the government. What we received in terms of information were four econometric models and graphs. That was not really going to drive behavioral change or decision-making towards that level of investment that the policymakers were hoping for. So what we did is we took their econometric models, we did a lot of stealth research, we spoke to people, and then we created this kind of model future city in in which we mapped out the five scenarios. One was business as usual, and the, all the way to the fifth scenario, which was like carbon, you know, carbon neutral, like a zero carbon world where they would have to drastically change their behavior. And they wanted us to engage the prime minister in, in a very short, like in a few minutes for him to go right maximum investment or as much investment as possible. They weren't very hopeful. They thought he'll go for the second scenario, which is just a little bit more investment than business as usual. However, when we had this uh, kind of crystals, kind of fictional city mapped out and all the five scenarios, in one of the scenarios, uh, there was a lot of investment in public transport. And at that point, all the cabinet ministers were like, you know, we cannot, you know, in, in, in UAE, like, you know, they love their cars. And, you know, my son loves my car, his car and I cannot even tell him to stop driving. All this public transport is not going to go down well. And so then we had these what we call diegetic prototypes, these kind of speculative pieces of evidence that accompanied each scenario. And so we took people over to this one particular speculative evidence in the form of a, a beaker that had bottled up polluted air from the future. So we had worked with some scientists and created an approximation of how bad the air quality would get if no action was taken. And so we had this uh, bottled air with an ultrasonic sensor that every now and again, a, a kind of a bit of this air would come out. And so it was really noxious. And this, just this whiff of this polluted air that was scientifically created was really disturbing, but at the same time, very provocative. And I suppose it played a part in aligning with the data that the policymakers had and led the government to invest one short of carbon neutral. So the fourth scenario, which was a huge amount of investment in renewable energy. That's, I think that's a brilliant story, and it's very clever the way you did that. The smell, in this case, the very bad smell of the noxious air, is just incredibly evocative, as, as you've described. I believe I'm right in saying that smell is, of our senses, the one with the strongest connection to memory. Have you, have you read about this? Do you know about this? So it's very evocative. So for me, my mother is from East Germany, and we used to go and visit in the 80s, before the 70s and 80s before the wall came down. And East Germany at the time used a lot of sulfuric coal, which I think had been phased out in West Germany and Britain at the time. So for me, my memories of East Germany are just the smell of kind of sulfuric coal, which takes me right back to about being nine years old in East Germany in a way. And occasionally over the years, I've smelt that smell and actually, I, I have a very positive association with it, even though it's very polluting. Yeah, I mean, yes, you're right. You know, smell 
a lot of our memories are formed of us of the smells that we had it, it sticks in a way that uh you know you might revisit something or you know you might go it's like oh my god this smells like my old house or it's it's really it's really powerful and overall we we do think that a lot of our big decisions you know if you think of policy makers who make decisions are driven by rational data they are meant to be driven by evidence and and the matter of fact is that we are biological beings and we we think through our bodies and our minds and we usually make decisions with our bodies and our minds we are not these kind of rational beings in a newtonian universe you know we are uh, full of meat and flesh <laughs> and blood running through our veins and that goes to our brain and you know there is so much data and neuroscience uh, evidence that shows that episodic mem- memory when triggered can lead people to much more powerful decision making so we are aware of this and we think that's where the power lies in this kind of embodied and sensory experiential journey into a future in whatever form you can maybe not instantly but over a period of time enable us to trigger that episodic memory which in turn can help us make more nuanced decisions mm so there you're tapping into people's whole selves there kind of rational and embodied ways in which we might make decisions and i'm just in my mind making a connection back to a conversation we we're having not long ago about kind of social media and digital technology that keeps us in our kind of primal brain and very much suspended animation if you will so it feels to me like you're also hacking people's neurochemistry and physiology as well but in a, in a with good intentions <laughs> rather than to sell them advertising what are your thoughts on that and how how is what you're doing different yeah i mean generally we say we are catalyzing their imagination <laughs> so you know you could say we are hacking their uh, cognitive capacities but um, i think it's more more like opening up possibilities and ideas that would otherwise you know maybe there but in dormancy one thing i've never understood about kind of futures work and maybe you can explain it to me is you talked earlier with the example in the uae about the five scenarios that you created uh, and we talked at the beginning of this conversation around predictions for the new year one thing i've never really understood is scenarios aren't predictions are they they're just a possible version of the future what, how would you describe the the difference between you know these five scenarios for instance with with a prediction for you know what the uae might be like in 2030 i think a scenario could become a prediction i think a prediction could have a very strong scenario associated with it but uh, traditionally in the world of kind of foresight their uh, scenario planning was actually i think again something that shell invented didn't they you mentioned them earlier yeah so originally has root in in the, in, in the world of bad fossil fuel company if you think about you know it was always this kind of quadrant method of you know having a b c or d plot a two kind of axes of is it is it feasible is outrageous whatever your two axes and then you kind of have possibilities and that applies to a lot of different things people do i think uh, with scenarios the exercise of scenarios makes possibilities more 
surfaces possibilities that otherwise may go unnoticed. So I think, you know, traditional futurists would kind of have a very different take on this. Our take in this in our studio is 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 led more by art and design, and we we use a design led approach to scenarios in the sense that we rather than divide things uh, and put them into different categories, we like to find connections and interdependencies and weave what we call rich tapestries of of many different possibilities that are not like this is a world where there's flooding this is a world of heat waves this is a world it's a, it's a world where there are flooding and heat waves and this and that everything and then we chart sort of journeys through that that take us to different places and so we like to work in a multi-layered complex way and and, and scenarios would still emerge from it um, the reason why they're not predictions is because all of these kind of extrapolations are speculations and they are informed by data. But to this stage, you may not get two climate scientists to exactly agree on a lot of data on climate science. They all are in agreement. 97% are in agreement that we are in a period of climate emergency. Which particular set of data they're following, which particular kind of events will occur and how, no scientist will predict that. At the point at which you're looking in the future, everybody is telling a story. It's fiction, but it's very informed fiction. It is, it is that we are in a state of crisis. What level, what nature, how it will play out, we don't know. So I think, I think predictions would be that we know that there'll be five hurricanes and 10. But, you know, a scenario would be that we would expect London by... 2050 to be a lot warmer and therefore we need to start looking at that affects biodiversity flora fauna that affects the food systems that affect you know so you are now looking at a complex system and you're not trying to say what exactly will happen but like trying to understand the bigger picture if that makes sense yeah it does make sense but it is as you said earlier it's just hard to in an yeah in an attention starved world where you know people latch on to single numbers like gdp or yeah. co2 emissions or global temperature rises or whatever the number might be but um try and boil down everything to a single number or a small set of numbers it's hard to communicate that interdependency that you describe which mm-hmm. is why i like the work that you do so uh, you talked about we've well, talked several times about the climate emergency and i know you were uh, heavily involved around the big climate change summit in Glasgow late last year, the COP26 summit. How did it make you feel? What was your emotional response to everything that happened in and around that summit and the city in November last year? I was at COP, but I was mostly based in the New York Times Climate Hub. So that was a fringe event outside of the blue zone. Let's just, it was a big event. There were a lot of big talks and we had an exhibition that we created for IKEA a house there so i could get a sense of a feel for the atmosphere you know then the next day was the big big march led by greta thunberg and several climate activists there was a lot of energy i mean you know it's undeniable the amount of pledges the work that social organizations and foundations and um, institutions and artists and activists and you know people on ground are, are doing I thought there were some small wins in terms of the promises made to increase our forests and, you know, 
the, 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 the levels of biodiversity. I think that was actually really good. But I think, you know, overall, it was a disappointment, like, uh, from what was what was what I was seeing, um, outside of, you know, being around people who were, like, there were activists speaking at New York Times Climate Hub, there was Malala who had joined uh, online, you know, there was a lot of positive energy, it just felt that the key decision to limit to 1.5 didn't get made. And even like 2.4 or or what we're aiming is is actually quite scary so i felt really like inspired on the ground but what came out as a decision was not that exciting it was actually quite sad yeah i i had a similar i think i must have been in the city a very similar time to you i also mm-hmm. and i think i felt the full spectrum of emotion in my uh, from excitement and inspiration and hope to fear, anger and frustration and almost everything else in between. Uh, again, I was listening to to you and your 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 partner uh, being interviewed by somebody else, um, and you said you're moving from stick to carrot, from cautionary tales to where there might be hope. Where do you, where is hope for you and in relation to COP, whose voices are you following and, and what, what gives you hope for the future in, in regards to where we are with our climate? I think in terms of voices whom I'm following are probably a lot of activists and a lot of writers and a lot of makers and doers sort of. I suppose we are talking a lot about this kind of cautionary tales to hope because climate change is a predicament. It is not something that is a, has an end date in that sense that you can find a fix to or a solution to, but does not mean we don't attempt to re, to stop it getting worse. Meaning there is urgency around the climate crisis. It's the hope lies in how we navigate it, and, and for us, the creation of that hope or the activation of that hope lies in the kind of stories we can tell that can inspire people. And the kind of kind of shift in perspectives that can be created that can enable people to navigate our precarity and move towards a future which is still uh, rampant with climate crisis. But we have found through ingenuity, through collective care, ways of nurturing and flourishing. What are your thoughts uh, or your responses to the the techno optimists who think that there's some miracle technology that will save us from our current predicament, whether it's carbon sequestration or some other technical solution that perhaps we haven't invented yet. You know, the history of futurism has shown us that you know we're very bad, as you said, as we said earlier, at predicting the future, and we extrapolate on from the present. We we can't predict those step change technologies or or shift that do occur. To be honest, I think we need it all. I do think we will need a lot of good technology. I think ethically done carbon sequestration is not out of my book of solutions. By no means contentious, but I know ethical and well-tested means of reducing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere will be needed because the amount of, if we stop putting any carbon out into the atmosphere at this moment, we still have enough that even after 100 years, it's not going to be the um, levels won't go down as much as we need them to in the next 10 years. So so short of a miracle, we need all the solutions, but we need them to be ethical. We need them to be well-tested. We need them not to be in the hands of the few who we've seen 
treat technology as a means of exploiting and extracting as much as they can out of people and profiteering through that. So I think cooperative forms of ethical, well-tested, just technologies will be going hand in hand with the kind of stories we tell, with, with the shift in our relationship with the natural world, with the reduction of our anthropocentric view of feeling that we are the most important species on the planet. We, we will need everything because we, yeah, there's a lot to do. Yeah. There's no silver bullet, that's for sure. No. You just said, and I agree with you, that whatever those solutions and uh, answers may be, they can't just be in the hands of the the few. I saw you tweeted something recently. I think it was an article written by someone else mm. that was saying Web3 is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and so given your comment that you know these solutions can't just be in the hands of the few, I'm sort of quite intrigued, but also skeptical by decentralized technologies and blockchains and decentralized autonomous organizations and all these things that sometimes get labeled under the Web3 umbrella. And I kind of want it to be true and I, I want it to have impact, but I just find it hard to find my route into that world where where do you stand on all of that and what role do you think that could play um i think pretty much as you are actually i haven't dug into it enough i know enough about it to kind of i'm not going to write it off i'm interested i, w- I would like to speculate about it i'd like to imagine possibilities but i also sense at least from the stuff i've read that there is a i worry about what happens when we don't have re- regulations in place. And I think I worry about that because we started Superflux at the back of the credit crisis. And we were, we had only just graduated a couple of years before that from Royal Kojavar. And we were, both John and I were really enraged by the level of, you know, we were kind of the young, young ish, not the young idealistic <laughs> artists, designers, uh, you know, w- you know, wanting to kind of do that. And it was just this kind of algo trading leading to kind of nobody even knew what a derivative was nobody even knew the third level consequences of the financial systems we had in place the the regulations around it were completely broken and 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 then the banks were then paid money to be bailed out of this disaster and and i'm i haven't forgotten that at all and I feel that whilst right now you're saying, okay, not in the hands of big banks, in the hands of everyone, unregulated financial services that currently only a very few cream of people who understand the technology can get. And we are trying, we are seeing already the level of huge investments that very rich people are putting into it means they will have controlling stakes. All of that side of it worries me. The nature of technology as such or financial technologies that are accessible that are not dictated by some rules some kind of antiquated rules all of that is exciting that you can think about it in in money in such a different way is super exciting but for me the unregulated uh, nature and power play as well as the amount of energy being consumed by bitcoin mining those are the two things that worry me. Yeah, we need um, yeah more more pioneering and design led regulatory environments and people and institutions and laws to 
But that's a very hard balance to get right. I don't know if you, just talking about the financial crisis, whether you're familiar with um, the book Another Now by Yanis Varoufakis. Yeah. I, I read that book over, over the Christmas holidays and it basically portrays in 2008 another, another world opens up where the response to the financial crisis was very different and, and it's a sort of pseudo-scientific uh, science fiction sort of comparison of people in our current reality talking with that other now it's very interesting i'm not sure if it's entirely successful but have you seen that i know about that book i haven't you know i haven't kind of dug into it i have um, read a lot of kind of bits and essays from yanis at that time he was uh, you know coming at it from such a unique position he, you know he had such a powerful role and i remember reading somewhere where he said that you know i still cannot influence my own government um, into the decisions, and it it was uh, it was rather sad, actually. I saw that you published recently a more than human manifesto, mm-hmm. and so um, where I think, if I'm correct in uh, understanding it, you're calling time on human exceptionalism. So I was just curious if you could explain to me what you mean by human exceptionalism and why you're calling time on it. <laughs> I think that's just, related to the earlier question you were talking about. You know. Uh, techno optimism, and I was, you know, uh, that our our thinking is that um, one of the big reasons why we are in this crisis is because we have extracted from nature, treating nature as something separate from us as humans, for our own benefit to a level where it's destructive and has resulted in the crisis we are today. Climate emergency is caused by humans, and um, the, the the level of, of fossil fuels in the atmosphere are caused by humans, and I think. We, we feel that if we are able to sh- understand the deeply interconnected nature of the planet we live on with how we are economically, emotionally, and ecologically entangled with all these other species, then I think we, we will have a reciprocal relationship with them and we will not be so exploitative and we will care for the planet. And the minute we start caring you know, in, in that way, we will be able to shift our lifestyles and our kind of, yeah, the way we live. So that kind of manifesto has emerged. And it's it's really thinking of lots of incredible scholars, you know, Anna Singh, Donna Haraway, you know, Dorian Sagan, uh, Iris Dunn, Vandana Shiva, to name a few, whose works really inspire me and who are quoted in that as well. So I think it's a collective effort to kind of frame our world as a multi-species planet, giving everyone a, a kind of status and a voice rather than just a human-centric. I think that's a, a wonderful place to end our conversation. Or if I can just ask one quick follow-up, which is I saw that you recently won this uh, fantastic award where you're recognized as Design Studio of the Year by Design, And I think at least one of the um, reasons why was this exhibition. I'm sorry, I can't recall the name, but uh, with uh, all the dead trees on the outside and the living trees on the middle, what, what Invo- was that called? Called Invocation for Hope at the Mark Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna. Well, it looks very striking just from the images that I've seen. I just wonder if you could give us a little invocation for hope and, and just tell us about that as our, as our final final bit of this conversation today. Yeah, sure. Um, so that was... Um, 
pretty much built on this idea of a more than human world. So we we worked with a, a forest about an hour from Vienna that had been destroyed by wildfire, and we were able to take the kind of remains of the of the trees to the museum and create this kind of very distinct journey from a forest that has been destroyed because of our our kind of destructive attitude to the planet and people move uh, wander past this kind of very grid like monocultured charred remains of a forest making their way to the center of the forest which is now actually uh, resurgent the, the new forest has been born it is a, a multi species forest lots of like different types of trees and shrubs and wild grasses and lichen live in harmony with each other and then there's a kind of a pool in the middle and when the humans look into the pool they see a reflection of another animal looking back at them so kind of connecting you with other species so you're not seeing your own reflection but it's kind of mirroring something else back at you and so it's an immersive uh, installation with the soundscape by Cosmo Sheldrake so you kind of move from the kind of anthropocentric view of 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 the world to a more than human possibility space Thank you, Anna. I really liked what she said about the future being built on the bones of the present and that the technologies and solutions of the future can't be in the hands of the few and that exploring possible futures and making better decisions today requires all of our senses, especially our noses. So if you want to find out a bit more about Anna and Superflux, please check out the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. We couldn't produce this podcast without the support of all of our patrons, members, clients, and partners. So thanks to all of you. Please check out www.weareliminal.co for more information. Please do like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might like it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.